through Romans 8 so far, so we remember where we've been. Romans 8, 1 to 4, the dominant theme was that we are in Christ. That if you unite yourself with Christ by faith, His righteousness becomes your righteousness, and your sinfulness became His sinfulness upon the cross, so that for those who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Romans 8, 1 to 4. Romans 8, 5 to 11 then, the dominant phrases and the themes were that the Spirit is in you. So that not only has God done everything necessary to remove from you the condemnation of sin, but that He has now put His Spirit in you so that you have the power to conquer ongoing sin. So that you can live the righteous requirement of God's law. In Christ, the Spirit in you. Now the transition comes in Paul's thought from the Spirit in you to you being in God's family. Did you notice all the kind of family phrases in these verses? So you can run through them. There's brothers, sons, sonship, Abba Father, children, heirs. Now again in this section, there's no imperatives. There's no commands. There's no do this. All the Apostle Paul is doing is saying... If you are now, by faith, in Christ, part of God's family, this is what you are like. This, these are the obligations. These are the privileges of what it means to be in God's family, his son or his daughter. That the family has a certain likeness. They have certain attributes that they have all of the time. It's just who they are. So my dad was up. And this week... Uh, my uncle came and my granddad came around. So there's four prime men in the room. What are you laughing at? You're all thinking, unbearable. But there's certain characteristics that prime men have. And it's not like when I was growing up, my dad says, you've got to be like this. Unfortunately, it just kind of happens. And you bear the family resemblance. So we all have this kind of slightly oversized forehead and this incessant necessity to be five minutes early for everything and for some reason this desire to sing very loudly in church just very slightly out of tune and we have this dodgy kind of quasi-English Scottish accent that doesn't quite make much sense but that's just what it is to be a prime man it's just who we are and the same is true Paul says if you are part of God's family There are certain privileges, there are certain obligations, there are certain characteristics that God's family will have. And so what we have in Romans 8, 12 to 17 tonight, is the characteristics of a son or daughter who knows God to be their father. It's a, how can I know if I'm a Christian? How can I know if I'm a part of the family? Will you look like this? Increasingly so. The platform's not deliberately set out like a Jeremy Kyle show. But it, it's kind of like that. And you know when Jeremy Kyle, when someone comes on and they've had a baby and they say, he's the father. And he says, I'm not the father. No, you are the father. And there's this debate and they say, okay, here's the deal. Let's get a test done. And we will find out for sure whether you are the child of this man. Well, how can you know if you're a child or daughter of the Heavenly Father. Thankfully, it's not by going on Jeremy Kyle, but it's by looking at Romans 8 and saying, well, do I bear these characteristics? And if this is true of you tonight, then there is great assurance for you here and in the rest of Romans 8 
And if they aren't true for you tonight, maybe it's the truth that although you've been in church, you've never been in Christ. And this is God speaking to you lovingly and honestly saying, do you know, if these things aren't true of you, then you need to put your faith in Jesus. So I've got six things. And we're going to draw a little bit of a picture up here on the whiteboard and um, bring out six characteristics. You're with me? Great. Characteristic number one, verses 12 and 13. Those who are part of God's family put to death the misdeeds of the body. Let's read verse 12 again. Therefore, brothers, we've got an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live in accordance to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Brothers, there's an obligation. You're a debtor. But remember who you are not in debt to. Your sinful nature. What did it give you? Remember back to what it brought you. Condemnation and slavery. You owe it nothing. So give it nothing. Feed it nothing. You're not obliged to that. You've got to remember that. You don't owe it any. Don't go back there. That is not where your allegiance lies anymore. Rather, your obligation in the power of the Spirit is to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Those who are in God's family have a kind of killer look in their eye sometimes. This glint that when it sees sin... It is desperate to kill it. Those in God's family have this lethal side to them because they hate the misdeeds of their body that brought condemnation and slavery. The Spirit is in you. And what does the Spirit hand you when He is in you? Well, Paul elsewhere is going to say He hands you a sword. The sword of the Spirit. And it's a sword not to play games with, It's not a sword to put on the ground and dance around like some weird Scottish country dancing. It is a sword that is designed to kill. To kill the misdeeds of your body. Everything that would rob you of life and keep you from freedom. It's in line with what the Lord Jesus said. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. There must be this lethal edge to us that we hate sin so much, we will kill every aspect of or evidence of or road that would lead us to sin. A member of God's family doesn't flirt with sin, doesn't play around sin, doesn't kind of joke around or be trivial with sin. kills it. He gets out the sword of the Spirit Ephesians 6, which is the word of God, and it puts it to death. It mortifies it. Now, what are these misdeeds of the body? They're outlined all over the place in God's word. Let's put some of the ones. These are just some lists from uh, the New Testament alone as to some of the misdeeds of the body. And I put these up just to say these are the kind of things that a Christian is to kill. That if we see ourselves having evil thoughts, or engaging in sexual immorality, or theft, or murder, or adultery, or coveting, or wickedness, or deceit, or sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. What are you to do? Kill them! Get out the sword of the Spirit and put them to death. There should be daily gravestones in the Christian life. As you say, this aspect of my old life 
has been put to death. Uh, there's more on the next slide. Well, that is the next slide. Uh, Colossians 3, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. When you're part of the new family, there's a new way to live. And so you put to death the old way. Imagine the prime family were to adopt David Martin. He would have to adopt some of these prime characteristics. We'd stretch his forehead out. We'd then make sure he was on time for everything. And there would be certain Martin characteristics he'd have to lose. Diabolos are not allowed in the prime household. Uh, we are not musical. You will have to cease to be musical. We are not Hibs fans. You will support hearts. There are certain things that David Martin will have to put to death. Now in the Christian life, it is not as trivial as that. We put them to death because otherwise they would kill us. How do you know if you are a part of the family? You are someone who is daily yielding the sword of the Spirit and putting to death everything that would kill you. Second characteristic, verse 14. You are led by the Spirit. The thought flows on because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now there's a lot of chat and a lot of confusion about what it means to be led by the Spirit. But here in Romans 8, it is not some small part of some aspect of our life that we're mysteriously led, but it is a total governing and controlling and determining of, by God of our entire lives. So that what our desires are led by is not ourselves, is not our old selves, is not the world around us, but is the Spirit of God. So that what determines and what is the determining factor in our decision making is the Spirit of God. What is the controlling influence in our emotions? It is the Spirit of God. What is the governing principle in our budgets? It is the Spirit of God. I was chatting to a pastor this week and he said he's got a guy in his congregation who's competing in the Commonwealth Games. He said he's a guy who's got huge potential in the church, but at the moment... What is leading him, what is driving him, is his competition in the Commonwealth Games. His food habits, his sleeping habits, his work-life balance, his everything is determined by, how am I going to compete in the Commonwealth Games? And his pastor actually said, you know what, it is to the detriment of his life in the church and his godliness in private. Competing in the Commonwealth Games is not a bad thing. But if it becomes a thing that you are led by, then there's a problem. What is leading you? Uh, the Spirit never comes into a person and takes the passenger seat. He always takes the wheel. It's always His direction in the sat-nav. It's always His music in the radio. It's always His power in the engine. It's always His feet on the pedals. It is His desires at verse 5. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. What are you being led by? Your comforts? Your house? Your career? Your sporting ability? How you look? Or all these things governed, directed, controlled by what the Spirit desires for your career? What the Spirit desires 
for your behavior, what the Spirit desires for who you are to be. Because those who are children of God are led by God. Third thing, not only they put the death and mystery to the body, not only are they led by the Spirit, but thirdly, verse 15, they cry, Abba, Father. Let's read verse 15. For those, um, sorry, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So far in Romans, we've been thinking about the idea of justification, that we are counted as righteous by God. And so the dominating kind of idea of God that we've been thinking is of God as judge. Paul moves us on from thinking of justification to adoption and God as Father. Uh, the Lord Jesus is God's one and only Son by eternal nature. It's who he is. And we see him in his earthly life. He comes and he prays to his Abba, Father. Constantly withdrawing to lonely places to pray to his Daddy, Father. Now, amazingly, when you put your faith in Christ, you're not only justified, but you're adopted so that God is no longer, you're no longer just determined by a slave-master relationship. It is that, but better. You are now a son to a father. God is your Abba Father. All the privileges of Jesus are now yours. I read a great blog this last week. Uh, a lady called Chelsea, writing called uh, Delighting in the Greater Adoption. Let me read you some of this. She writes, Apart from the gift of my salvation, earthly adoption is the greatest gift I've ever received. I was an orphan, born physically and spiritually. My uh, story began in Romania with a 19-year-old unwed girl who wasn't able to take care of me. The Lord sovereignly chose adoption for me. I'm blessed that a man and woman from the U.S. made a decision that radically altered my life forever when they traveled across the world and chose me as their daughter. I was rescued from a life void of love and care and freely given a new life beyond my wildest dreams. Adoption is immensely personal. Because I was specifically chosen, sought out, bought, declared to have all the rights and privileges of being a member of a new family, and most importantly, loved beyond belief. But as I pause to meditate on my adoption from Romania, I cannot help but meditate on an even greater adoption. God did not choose to adopt you because of anything you did, for we're completely undeserving of his great adoption. As a helpless baby in Romania, I could do nothing to prove that I was worthy of being adopted. I couldn't work my way into my earthly father's heart. I could not do nothing but accept and enjoy the gift of adoption. As God's child, there is nothing you can do to make him love you more, for he has already given you the greatest gift, his son. That is the thrill of the doctrine of adoption. All the rights and privileges that are only Jesus's gifted to you as you put your faith in him. So that you can now call God Abba, Father. Do you know, we need to hear this. Over the last couple of weeks, I uh, had a few conversations with people who it's very easy to get into the attitude slip where we think of God solely as a judge who must look disapprovingly down on us. He must think something like, oh, he's gone and slipped up again. 
house at. We get into the mindset. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? And once the prodigal son is returned and his father's thrown a party, what does the elder son say? He calls his dad out and he says, Listen, all these years I've been slaving for you. He considers himself not to be a son of a father, but a slave of a master. Isn't it easy to slip into that attitude with God? We want to earn something from him. And we have this presumption that he must be this disapproving deity. That is not true if you are in Christ. He is a father who looks down not disapprovingly, but with absolute love. So that just as he can say of Jesus, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He will say of you, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. And with her, I am well pleased. You are not a slave. You are a son. And so Paul says, you need not come in fear. But you can come in all the intimacy and the joy and the assurance and the confidence of praying this infant noise. Abba. Father. We mustn't be like the elder brother in that parable of the prodigal. We must be like our elder brother, the elder brother, the Lord Jesus, who prays, Abba, Father. It's what it means to be part of the family. You speak to your dad, you pray, you cry out with all the emotion of a little child. Show me the person who doesn't pray to his heavenly father, and I'll show you the person who's probably not part of the family. Because when you get this, you can't help it. Fourth thing, not only crying, Abba, Father, but you experience the Spirit's inner testimony. Verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now in verse 15, we give testimony to our uh, status as part of God's family by praying, Abba, Father. But in this verse, something's different going, is going on. God's Spirit testifies to us that we are God's children. Um, I want to say this carefully, so listen carefully. Our awareness of God as Father comes not from rational consideration or external testimony alone. It does come from that. The primary source of our knowledge of God as Father comes from God's work as it's displayed in God's Word. So that I read here that God is the Father who adopts me in Christ. That is how I know that I, that I have God as a Father. But it is more than that. Because as well as this external testimony... The spirit that God has put in you is not a spirit that is silent. He testifies. He speaks with your spirit directly. If you're part of the family, you'll know this. It is a truth that is deeply felt and intensely personal. Maybe it came at the moment of conversion with that inexpressible sense of peace. Maybe it comes in the moment of temptation with this overwhelming awareness of God's holiness. Maybe it comes in the moment of frantic chaos when you're suddenly aware of his fatherly care. Maybe it's in that moment of horrid isolation when you're overcome by his constant faithful presence. 
But God in his goodness testifies deep in your spirits that you're his child. He tells you, I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. It is this deeply felt testimony of the Spirit. And again, we need to be careful when we think of this. This is not something only for special Christians. Paul expects this to be the normal pattern of every single son and daughter of God the Father. The Spirit testifies. He speaks within them that they might know that they're his child. Fifth thing, verse 17a. There is also the hope of glory. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. The Spirit who tells you that you're a son or a daughter also tells you that you are an heir, that you have an inheritance to look forward to. The idea of being an heir of God is big in the Old Testament, especially with the tribe of the Levites. You'll know the story when Israel eventually get into the promised land, they start dividing it between the 12 tribes of God. But 11 tribes get a portion of the land, and the Levites are told this. They are told that their inheritance is the God of Israel. The Lord is their inheritance. It's the same idea that comes actually in Psalm uh, Psalm 73. Uh, The psalmist writes in Psalm 73, verses 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth is nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What does it mean to be an heir of God? That actually God himself is your inheritance. He is the one who is your hope of glory. He is the one that you gain. I think Christians, I think I, when I think about hope, can often think of the stuff I think God should give me rather than God himself. It's a little, go back to the parable of the prodigal son. What was the younger son's syndrome? He wanted all the father's stuff, but not the father. So he says, dad, give me your stuff and I'm going to go away so that I can enjoy it without you. What does the older son do? He comes to his father and says, I want you to give me a young goat so that I can enjoy it with my, my friends apart from you. Again, he wants the father's stuff, but he doesn't want the father. That is not the Christian's hope of glory. Demonstrated in that parable, the Christian's hope is seen where? Where the younger son comes home and hugs his dad. That's the Christian hope. Not the Father's stuff, but the Father himself. You are an heir of God. The Lord is my portion. The God of Israel is my inheritance. When you were a kid and your dad went away on trips, business trips or whatever, I remember when dad went away and he came home, I would run to the door. Why? (laughs) Because he brought Lego or something with him. He brought a gift. And that's why I wanted to see my dad. Now that I'm a bit older, slightly more mature, when my dad's been away when I've not seen him for a while, actually what I want is just my dad. Because it's the relationship that is key. It's not his stuff. It's him. That is what it means to be a Christian, have the hope of glory. 
that all I want is to hug. God is not a means to an end. He is the end. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Enjoy Him forever. Do you know that deep joy of knowing God? Is that your hope for heaven? Not what won't be there or not what will be there, but who will be there. The embrace of the prodigal as he holds his father in his arms. It's the hope of glory. Do you know that? Final thing. Not only a hope of glory, but a share in Christ's suffering. Verse 17b. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul here introduces a theme that will take up the rest of Romans 8. The theme of suffering. In the context of this hope of glory, Paul says there will be a share in Christ's suffering. What was the shape of Jesus' career? Suffering first, glory later. First the cross, and then the crown. And what does Jesus constantly say to his disciples? He says, guys, listen. A servant is not greater than his master. If I suffer, you'll suffer. He says, listen, I'm taking up my cross. If you're going to follow me, you must take up your cross. He says, guys, listen. If they hated me, they will hate you. The career path of the Lord Jesus is the career path of his disciples. Living in God's family, led by God's spirit, will mean suffering with God's son. A suffering that is inseparable from fellowship with Jesus in a world that does not yet know him. Uh, If you're more defined by the kind of teenager who hangs back from his family when they walk down the street because he's embarrassed to be associated with them. You been there? That is not what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in God's family. Whereby you kind of hang back from Jesus embarrassed that you might suffer with him. No, actually the Christian knows that some of the sweetest fellowship with Jesus comes when you're suffering with him. Do you remember the apostles in Acts 5? They're taken in because they're preaching the gospel. They're flogged. And what do they come out doing? Singing. Why? They say, we have been counted worthy of suffering for the name of Christ. No sweeter fellowship than when we suffer with him. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. I want to know Christ. What do you mean, Paul? Well, I want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering, becoming like him in his death. If you're in God's family, one of the surest proofs of that will be that you're willing to suffer with Jesus. Knowing that he suffered for my sin, but I might suffer with him in the rejection that he knew in his earthly life now six characteristics of being in God's family if we read this and you say do you know what I know that imperfectly yes but increasingly yes Paul says there's great assurance everything that is true of Christ is true of you all the hope that is in Christ is your hope so brothers and sisters To summarize the rest of Romans 8, stick in, hold fast, keep going. Now, if you've been listening to this and you've thought, you know what, 
It's not me. Actually, I've been living with an obligation to my sinful flesh. All those things we put up in the screen kind of defines my life. I've never known that inward testimony of the Spirit. I've never known this desire for God as my Father. Then maybe it's a loving, truth-telling moment to you tonight. Maybe you've been in church loads of times, but you've never been in Christ by faith. Maybe you've been in and around Christians loads, but the Spirit has never been in you. And Paul would say tonight, you need to unite yourself by faith with Jesus. Because if you live in accordance with the sinful nature, you will die. But if you live in the power of the Spirit, with your trust in Christ, you shall live. Let's take a couple of minutes to respond privately, personally, to God's Word. Maybe to pray prayers of thanks. Maybe prayers of confession. Maybe prayers just delighting in who God is. And then in a few minutes when the band starts, we'll